What's up, witches? Hi, I'm Claudia. And I'm Jess. And welcome to True Crime Coven. So I'm Claudia and I bring the true crime content. I aim to make it ethical and inclusive and as much of a safe space as possible. And I'm Jess and I bring the ghost stories and the cryptid stories and I like to present them in the form of a sandwich. So we go ghost story, cryptid story and finish up with a slice of ghost story bread. And it's always delicious. <laughs> if this sounds like something you'd be interested in, then search True Crime Coven wherever you get your podcasts. And just remember to stay safe and stay, stay spooky. <laughs> Do not attempt to adjust the settings on your device. The sounds you hear are not hallucinations. You have crossed into the domain of a traveler that has a taste for telling tales about the macabre, the strange, the unusual, and the morbid. Don't be shy. Step inside and take a seat by the fire and enjoy your visit into the world that is the Nightcap Nebula. my friends and welcome to the nightcap nebula podcast where nothing is taboo or wicked and the topics are always eerie and intriguing it's been a very successful run so far and i have enjoyed entertaining you all i know most of you are used to my lists and it's always fun to showcase various aspects of the grisly gruesome and horrendous things humanity is capable of as well as shining a light on the more interesting and wondrous aspects that the universe offers that tends to balance the scales so to speak there is, however, my desire to keep you on your toes and throw a cosmic curveball your way and new information has come across my phantom stranger desk that I just had to devote an entire segment to. And I'm sure almost all of you out there in true crime land have heard of the name I'm about to utter. A name that sends dogs into a frenzy. A name that causes the neighbors to get additional security. A name that is the very epitome of chaos and murder. I am, of course, talking about the legendary Jack the Ripper. It can be difficult to keep stories like this fresh and hold the attention of those that already know way too much about individuals like this. But I like to think my abilities are intact, and if this is your first time joining me by the fire, you will learn quickly that this humble storyteller is quite good at what he does, and even better at unearthing what you have yet to find. Let's get comfortable, listeners, and get ready for the untold story of Jack the Ripper. Jolly Old England has always been a country of wonder, architecture, royalty, and the birthplace of a global powerhouse. Monarchies ruled with iron fists and conquered cultures the world over. King Charles, Edward Longshanks, King George, Queen Elizabeth, and countless others. It was also ground zero for the bubonic plague that wiped out one-third of Europe's population and America was founded by those who refused taxation without representation. Since the end of the Revolutionary War, England has been a country devoted more to proper etiquette, manners, preserving its history, and being a punching bag for having bad cuisine, which might have been accurate long ago, but is not the case anymore. Yes, all that and more, but before the turn of the century, the streets of British town were cobblestone bleak, full of prostitutes, opium dens, and pickpockets standing by dustbins ready to rob the local gentry, noblemen, and women. 
Speaking of prostitutes, the nighttime can be very nefarious and incredibly ominous on any given evening. But in the late 1800s, if you turned on the red light, so to speak, your chances of going back home in one piece became more problematic, and it was not easy to defend yourself as a working woman back then. As hookers had little to no rights, no one cared about them, and if one disappeared, constables turned a blind eye. This is where our friend Jack Shine, and the start of the story, begins. The Beginning The background of the area where the atrocities occurred which is Whitechapel, started to get overcrowded with Irish and Jewish immigrants around 1882, with the population exploding to 80,000 by 1888. Infanticide was high, unemployment was at critical levels, substance abuse hit epidemic-like hallmarks, crime ran rampant, and it got so bad that 9 out of 10 women were turning tricks just to put food on their family's table. It was estimated that 62 brothels were operating at this time, employing over 1,200 women. Those that didn't work at sanctioned whorehouses, such as Mary Ann Nichols, were at the mercy of nightly society members during a very tumultuous time with racism and the infamous Bloody Sunday occurred one year prior. Nevertheless, she had to make ends meet, so every night she caroused around that seedy part of London looking for good time chaps, hoping to not get hurt or worse in the process. This particular evening was unexceptional. Couple pences from cheapos and some decent blokes that wanted her to have some extra. Not a person could be found in the dark side streets, but the rats were plentiful and the noisy dogs were barking, which would most likely be the last sounds Mary would ever hear, because on this night, around 3.40 a.m., she was found dead on the corner of Buck's Row with deep slashes on her throat and her abdomen brutally cut open. This would become the first of five murders that happened over three months from August to November in 1888. The names, in order of demise, were Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. All the victims were in Whitechapel, all of them were prostitutes, and all were killed, dismembered, mutilated, and had their organs harvested in the same fashion. The authorities later referred to these five unfortunate women as the Canonical Five, and their deaths will be discussed in greater detail later. The murders themselves didn't really cause any immediate concern. The brutality in which they were carried out did. Around this time, women were killed quite often due to the unrest and crime that encircled the city. Metro Police in the East End had their own separate investigation stretching from the 3rd of April 1888 to the 13th of February 1891 and were known collectively in the police docket as the Whitechapel Murders. There was strong divisiveness among authorities if all the murders should be lumped together, but the five that were viciously carved up, had their throats slashed in a specific fashion and eviscerated, had no doubt to who committed the acts. However, two names are stricken from the list which were the first reported murders in Whitechapel, Emma Elizabeth Smith and Martha Tabram. Emma said that she had been robbed and sexually violated by two robbers when she was admitted to the hospital. She later died from ruptured abdomen as a result of her assault. As for Martha, she received multiple stab wounds from a penknife to nearly all her vital organs, a deep slash to her throat, breasts, and vagina. It was later determined that a right-handed individual killed Martha, and that she was not sexually assaulted. Her throat and abdomen were also not slashed, leading investigators to also rule her out as being a victim of Jack, since it did not match up with his M.O., but some experts believe she was indeed the first victim. As for the five so confirmed, who were they exactly? The Canonical Five 
Marianne Nichols had last been seen alive approximately one hour before the discovery of her body by a Mrs. Emily Holland, with whom she had previously shared a bed at a common lodging house in Thrall Street, Spitalfields, walking in the direction of Whitechapel Road. Her throat had been severed by two deep cuts, one of which completely severed all the tissue down to the vertebrae. Her vagina had been stabbed twice, and the lower part of her abdomen was partly ripped open by a deep jagged wound, causing her bowels to protrude. Several other incisions inflicted on both sides of her abdomen had also been caused by the same knife, with each of these wounds being inflicted in a downward thrusting manner, suggesting it was all done in a fit of rage. One week later, on Saturday 8th September 1888, the body of Annie Chapman was discovered at 6am near the steps to the doorway of the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, Spitalfields. As with Nichols, her throat was severed by two deep cuts. Her abdomen had been cut entirely open, with a section of the flesh from her stomach being placed upon her left shoulder, and another section of her skin and flesh, plus her small intestines, being removed and placed above her right shoulder. Her autopsy also revealed that her uterus and sections of her bladder and vagina had been removed. At the inquest into her murder, Elizabeth Long described having seen Chapman standing outside 29 Hanbury Street at about 5.30 a.m. and the accompanied by a dark-haired man wearing a brown deer stalker hat and dark overcoat, and of a shabby genteel appearance. According to this eyewitness, the man had asked Chapman the question, Will you? To which Chapman had replied yes, which suggests that the man wanted her services. As for Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes, they were both killed in the early morning hours of Sunday, 30th of September, 1888. Stride's body was discovered around 1am in Dutfield's yard off Burner Street in Whitechapel. The cause of death was a single clear-cut incision measuring 6 inches across her neck which had severed her left cardoid artery and her trachea before terminating beneath her right jaw. The absence of any further mutilations to her body has led to uncertainty as to whether Stride's murder was committed by the Ripper or whether he was interrupted during the attack. Several witnesses later informed police they had seen Stride in the company of a man or close to Burner Street on the evening of the 29th September and in the early hours of 30th September, but each gave Gave differing descriptions. Some said that her companion was fair, others dark. Some said that he was shabbily dressed, others well-dressed. It's inconclusive if any of these eyewitness accounts were accurate. Edel's body was found in a corner of Meter Square in the City of London three quarters of an hour after the discovery of the body of Elizabeth Stride. Her throat was severed from ear to ear, and her abdomen ripped open by a long, deep, and jagged wound before her intestines had been placed over her right shoulder, with a section of intestine being completely detached and placed between her body and left arm. The left kidney and the major part of Edo's uterus had been removed, and her face had been disfigured, with her nose severed, her cheeks slashed, and cuts measuring a quarter of an inch and a half an inch, respectively, vertically incised through each of her eyelids. A triangular incision, the apex of which pointed towards Edo's eye, had also been carved upon each of her cheeks, and a section of the auricle and lobe of her right ear was later recovered from her clothing. The police surgeon who conducted the post-mortem upon Edo's body stated his opinion that these mutilations would have taken at least five minutes to complete. A local cigarette salesman named Joseph Loden had passed by a narrow walkway to Meter Square named Church Passage with two friends shortly before the murder. He later described seeing a fair-haired man of medium build with a shabby appearance with a woman who may have been Eddowes, but Joseph's companions were unable to confirm his description. The murders of Stride and Eddowes ultimately became known as 
the double event. A section of Oz's bloodied apron was found at the entrance to a tenement in Goulston Street, Whitechapel, at 2.55 a.m. A chalk inscription upon the wall directly above this piece of apron read, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. This scribbling became known as the Goulston Street Graffito. The message appeared to imply that a Jew or Jews in general were responsible for the series of murders, but it is unclear whether the message was written by the murderer on dropping the section of apron or was merely incidental and nothing to do with the case since defacement was commonplace in Whitechapel. Police Commissioner Charles Warren feared that the graffito might spark anti-Semitic riots and ordered the writing washed away before dawn. The supposed final victim of the Ripper was Mary Jane Kelly, who was discovered lying on the bed in a single-room dwelling where she lived at 13 Miller's Court off of Dorset Street, Spitalfields, at 10.45 a.m. on Friday, November 9, 1888. She had been disemboweled. Her face had been hacked beyond all recognition, with her throat severed down to the spine and the abdomen almost emptied of its organs. Her uterus, kidneys, and one breast had been placed beneath her head, and other viscera from her body placed beside her foot, about the bed and sections of her abdomen, and thighs upon a bedside table. The heart was missing from the crime scene as well. Multiple ashes found within the fireplace at 13 Miller's Court suggested Kelly's murderer had burned several combustible items to illuminate the single room as he mutilated her body. A recent fire had been severe enough to melt the solder between a kettle and its spout, which had fallen into the grate of the fireplace. It is unclear just how many women the Ripper killed, but it is generally accepted that he killed just the five. Some scholars swear that he only killed four, while others say seven or more. The public press and even many junior police officers believed that the Ripper was responsible for nine slayings. Philip Sungden wrote in his book, The Complete History of Jack the Ripper, that there is no simple answer. In a sentence, at least four, probably six, just possibly eight. In short, no one knows how many victims, and guessing is as good as it gets. All of the murders occurred late at night, and all but Tabram and Kelly were killed outdoors, and there is no evidence to suggest that any of them knew each other. Most were drunk or thought to be drunk at the time they were killed. Suffice it to say, whoever this crazed murderer was, he was truly sick in the head and had an axe to grind. Of course, this was only the tip of a very large iceberg in the slayings, as there was a lot more ahead. The Investigation Aside from what the authorities noticed in terms of wound patterns, gruesome methods used, and what kind of targets he went for, there was little descriptive evidence to go on, never mind the non-existent forensic evidence. That being said, there is something to add about how the killings were carried out, but it wasn't really understood until the past decade. Let me draw a picture for you. The Whitechapel murderer and his victims stood facing each other. When she lifted her skirts, the victim's hands were occupied and was then defenseless. The Ripper seized the women by their throats and strangled them until they were unconscious, if not dead, although some writers believe that the Ripper struck from behind when the victims were bent forward and their skirts hiked up their backsides, awaiting to engage in anal sex. This is a very awkward arrangement, and the risk that they may scream to alert people makes this action highly unlikely. The Ripper then lowered his victims to the ground, their heads to his left. This has been proven by the position of the bodies in relation to the walls and fences that show there was virtually no room for the murderer to attack the body from the left side. No bruising on the back of the head shows that he lowered the bodies to the ground rather than throwing or letting them fall. As you can no doubt imagine, the streets of London back then were filled with rat excrement, urine, and other bacteria, so having sex on the ground wasn't exactly arousing for both parties, which means this most likely didn't occur. 
He cut the throats when the women were on the ground. Splatter stains show that the blood pooled beside or under the neck and head of the victim, rather than the front, which is where the blood would flow if they had been standing up. In one case, blood was found on the fence some 14 inches or so from the ground and opposite the neck wound, and this shows that the blood spurted from the body while in the prone position on the ground. This method also prevented the killer from being unduly blood-stained. By reaching over from the victim's right side to cut the left side of her throat, the blood flow would have been directed away from him, which would have reduced the amount of blood in which she would have been exposed. If the victim was already dead before their throats were cut, then the blood spilt would have not been very much. With the heart no longer beating, the blood would not have been pressurized, so only the blood in the immediate area of the wound would have flowed gently from the cuts. The Ripper then made his other mutilations, still from the victim's right side, or possibly while straddling over the body at or near the feet. In several cases, the legs had been pushed up, which would have shortened the distance between the abdomen and the feet. No sign of intercourse was ever detected, and most likely the Ripper did not masturbate over the bodies, as some scholars think. The taking of a trophy is a common practice by modern sexual serial killers, and in this case, he took the victim's viscera. In the opinion of most of the surgeons who examined the bodies, most believe that the killer had to have some degree of anatomical knowledge to do what he did. In one case, he removed a kidney from the front rather than from the side, and did not damage any of the surrounding organs while doing so. In another case, he removed the sexual organs with one clean stroke of the knife. Given the time circumstances of the crimes outside, often in near total darkness, keeping one eye out for the approach of others, and under extremely tight time constraints, the Ripper almost certainly would have had some experience in using his knife. Forensic examiners knew they were dealing with a professional, and they understood how he carried out his madness, but what they couldn't wrap their heads around was the who or why of it all. Soon the public would be clued in, and it would get more confusing and controversial from there. The Ripper Letters It was inevitable that our mystery man of malice would get cocky and start taunting authorities like the Zodiac Killer or the Son of Sam. Or did he? In fact, it is agreed upon by a vast number of experts that most of the letters were not even written by him. The first letter, for example, was dated September 25th and received on the 27th by the Central News Agency was signed Jack the Ripper. Then a postcard postmarked October 1st followed, and because it was referred to as a double event, the police thought it might be from the killer since it was posted the day after the Ripper killed two women. The postcard also referenced to the letter, so it must have come from the same source as the letter since it had not been released to the public at the time. However, if the postcard had been sent on September 30th, the day of the double event, instead of October 1st, the likelihood that it was really written by the murderer would be significantly greater. The original name of Jack the Ripper was the Whitechapel Murderer, and he may have written the letter postcard, but there is no evidence to that he did, and the police seem convinced that they were the work of a journalist. A recently discovered document states that a journalist from the Central News Agency, Tom Bowling, was the writer, but it was never established if he was the culprit. Despite the hoaxes, there may have been one letter that was written by the killer. In mid-October, a small parcel was sent to George Lusk, who was head of a vigilance committee in Whitechapel. Inside was half a human kidney and a letter from someone claiming to be the killer, and that it was part of a kidney he removed from the victim Eddowes. It is impossible to know for sure if the Ripper really did send it, and the problem was most of the arguments in favor of it being from Jack have been based on inaccurate information, mostly from the myths rather than the facts surrounding the case. 
However, Edo's did suffer from Bright's disease, and the description of the kidney does match what a Bright's disease kidney would look like, but there is really no way of telling if it was an exact match without risking gross error due to degradation of the DNA and sample. The long haul into the investigation began with the public and media making a mockery of it all, and only got deeper from there, and just as convoluted and frustrating. Even after news broke out that the first letter was a fake, other newspapers hyper-focused on one thing from it that they knew would create hype and international appeal. It was signed Jack the Ripper, and a grisly legend was born. The Evidence Detectives these days have it easy, with fingerprints, semen, surveillance, and the all-important yet a bit flawed DNA matching system to catch perps. At the turn of the century, the only way to really get anyone committing rape, murder, or other heinous acts was to catch them actually in the act, or interrogate them until they break and confess. But this was, and still is, a bit unreliable to get to the truth. It was the best way they had at the time, and it led to a lot of bad convictions and a lot more than now. One interesting feature of this case is that not one, but two police forces carried out investigations. The Metropolitan Police, known as Scotland Yard, was responsible for crimes committed in all the boroughs of London except for the City of London. The single square mile in the heart of London known as the City of London had their own police force. When Eddowes was killed, it was in their territory and this brought them into the Ripper case. Both forces got along and worked well together, but there is evidence that the seniors in each force did not, which is typical in jurisdiction and power plays. To what degree, if any, their failure to cooperate fully had on solving the case is not known. Most sources did not fault either police force for failing to solve the case, but solving complicated scenarios and catching serial killers, especially when that term was not even coined until the 1970s, is still a hard task even by today's science and technology, and was even more daunting than establishing patterns then. Other than autopsies and taking statements from everybody who might know something, there was little else that the Metropolitan Police Force did. The attitude of the people at the time was just that police were incompetent and that the commissioner, Sir Charles Warren, was only good for policing crowds and keeping order rather than detective work. He was especially criticized for not offering a reward in the hope that a confederate or accomplice would come forth and inform against the Ripper. In fact, Warren had no objections for a reward being offered, and it was his superior, Henry Matthews, the Home Secretary, who refused the sanction of a reward. The City of London Police seems to have done a better job, although they did not apprehend the killer or any worthwhile suspects either. City police officers made crime scene drawings, took many photographs of the victim, Eddowes, and even though she was not in their jurisdiction, they took photographs of the Kelly victim. She is the only victim who was photographed at the crime scene, and one of the splits between the leadership of the two forces was over wall scribbling found in Goulston Street on the night of the double event. A piece of Eddowes' apron, which the Ripper used to wipe off his knife, was found by a constable near a doorway that had a chalked message over the door. The message, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing, may have been written by the Ripper and the city police officers wanted to photograph it. Warren felt that leaving it until it was light enough to be photographed might cause riots against the Jews living in Whitechapel, whom the prejudiced English residents already believed were responsible for the murders. Unfortunately, Warren did not even compromise in erasing or covering up the word Jews only. In the end, the police never charged any suspect with the murders committed by the Ripper, which shows they did not have a sufficient amount of evidence that would gain a verdict of guilty in criminal court. 
The next leg of the inquiry would be one that would extend over decades and become something of a grand farce of a three-ring circus, leading those that would want to crack the mystery into an early grave from unparalleled craziness or want to crawl into a bottle never to return to the land of the scene. The Suspects Oh, the fun investigators had with this one, and to a point still do. Online sleuths and armchair detectives have thrown their hat into the ring trying to tackle this one, and most have come up with lots of possibilities, from Walt Whitman and Winston Churchill to Bigfoot and the devil himself. Okay, maybe not that crazy, but Jackie Boy is something of a real-life Batman in terms of his true identity. Starting in 1894, with the top three suspect named by Sir Melville McConnon, then Chief Constable, he wrote a confidential report naming each, although some information concerning the suspects he believed most likely to have been the murderer had been available before the turn of the century. The name of this first suspect was not made public until 1959. Melville's suspect was M.J. Druitt, a barrister-turned-teacher who committed suicide in December of 1888. Unfortunately for Melville, who wrote his memoranda for memory, the details he describes to Druitt are wrong. According to the chief constable, Druitt was a doctor, 41 years of age, and committed suicide immediately after the Kelly murder. In actuality, Druitt was 31, not a doctor, and killed himself nearly a month after the last official murder. No other police officer supported Melville's allegations except one, and he stated that the theory was inadequate and that the suicide was circumstantial evidence at best, that the drowned doctor was the Ripper. No other police officer supported Melville's allegations, except one possibly, but he did state that the theory was inadequate and that the suicide was circumstantial evidence at best, that the drowned doctor was the Ripper. While it's still possible that he was the Ripper, correct information gathered about Druitt so far makes him seem an unlikely candidate. A runner-up in 1903 was named by Frederick Aberlein, a retired detective who had been in charge of the Ripper investigation at the ground level, stated that he thought the multiple-wife poisoner Severin Kowalski, alias George Chapman, might be Jack the Ripper. As with Millville, no other officer has concurred with his opinion, and modern criminal profiling science tends to reject Kowalski as a serious candidate. The name of Melville's second suspect was confirmed as Aaron Kosminski in the early 1980s when a researcher came upon Donald Swanson's personal copy of Robert Anderson's book of memoirs. Both Swanson and Anderson were officers who participated in the Ripper investigation and were the ones given the responsibility of being in charge of the case. Anderson had written his memoirs that appeared for the first time in 1910 that the police knew who the Ripper was. According to Anderson, the Ripper was a Polish Jew who was put away in an insane asylum after the crimes and then died soon after. Swanson had made some notes in his copy of the book concerning Anderson's suspect and wrote that the suspect's name was Kaminsky. At first, it seemed that the case had been solved, but research has found a number of problems with the theory. No other officer supported Anderson's allegation, and Swanson's notes seemed to question his superior's claims rather than support them. Aaron Kosminski was a real person and was placed in an insane asylum, but his records show him to be a docile and harmless lunatic that heard voices in his head and would only eat food from the gutter. The dates of his incarceration are wrong, and he did not die soon after his committal, but lived on until 1919. Some researchers have tried to explain the problems by saying that the name Kosminski was confused with another insane Polish Jew who really was dangerous, but records and testimonials were so unreliable and often lost that this type of correspondence is circumstantial and incredibly loose at best. 
The final Melville suspect, Michael Ostrog, has been investigated and there is nothing to indicate that he was nothing more than a demented con man. Police looked into his past and found that he had committed assault a handful of times, but he had never stabbed or shot anyone in the process, leaving experts to believe that he didn't have the fortitude or inclination to carry out the deeds in question. Virtually anyone connected to the case by documents has been named as suspects, from Prince Albert Victor to beloved writers and painters, such as Lewis Carroll and Walter Sickert. As everyone at the time is now long dead, most authors these days have taken outlandish liberties in putting their spin on who they believe the Ripper is, despite there being substantial evidence to back it up or not. The number of named suspects has well surpassed over 100, and the obsession with naming anyone continues to grow with renewed vigor, especially with the rise of true crime documentaries being easily digestible. Despite all this, however, the Ripper's identity remains unknown. Or is it? I hate to keep you all in the dark. Well, actually, that's a lie. I love that. But I also love to keep you all in suspense, so entertain my fun sickness a bit longer before we get to the developments in this case, while I give you 10 lesser-known facts about our sinister guest of honor. Number 1. Four of the five Ripper victims had previously been married. The fifth, Mary Jane Kelly, does not appear in official records, and comparatively little is known about her life. Unlike the other four canonical Ripper victims, Mary Jane Kelly was murdered within the room she rented at 13 Miller's Court, a small, sparsely furnished single room at the back of 26 Dorset Street, Spitalfields. The mutilation of Kelly's corpse was by far the most extensive of any of the Whitechapel murders, likely because the murderer had had more time to commit these atrocities in a private room, without fear of discovery as opposed to the public areas. Number 2. The first victim spent the years prior to her death in and out of the workhouse. From 1881, Mary Ann Nichols is known to have resided off and on at Lambeth Workhouse, where she described herself as a chairwoman. Following Mary's murder, the sum total of her possessions were listed as a comb, a white handkerchief, and a broken piece of mirror. Number 3. The third victim was born near Gothenburg in Sweden. Elizabeth Stride moved to London in July 1866, possibly to work in service for a family living near Hyde Park. It is likely she funded the trip with 65 krona that she inherited after the death of her mother in August 1864 and which she had received in late 1865. Upon her arrival in London, Elizabeth learned to speak both English and Yiddish in addition to her native language. Number 4. The funerals of the victims were largely quiet affairs. However, according to the report in the Daily Telegraph, the funeral of Catherine Eddowes was quite the opposite. The report describes a cast of thousands participating in the funeral procession through Whitechapel and hundreds more waiting at the church. Number 5. George Lusk was president of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. This was a sort of neighborhood watch set up to patrol the streets looking for the Whitechapel fiend. On 16th October, he received a box containing a letter and part of a human kidney. The letter was addressed from hell. A kidney was removed from the body of Catherine Eddowes, murdered on 30th September, though it could not be proven that the kidney in the box belonged to Eddowes. Number 6. Jack the Ripper was originally referred to as Leather Apron. It's hard to imagine any other name for this figure, but an excerpt from The Star on Wednesday, September 5th, 1888 explains his original designation. Leather Apron by himself is quite an unpleasant character, if, as many of the people suspect, he is the real author of the three murders which, in everybody's judgment, were done by the same person. He is more ghoulish and devilish brute than can be found in all the pages of shocking fiction. He has ranged Whitechapel for a long time. He exercises over the unfortunates who ply their trade after 12 o'clock at night, a sway that is based on universal terror. 
From all accounts, he is 5 feet 4 or 5 inches in height and wears a dark, close-fitting cap. He is thick-set and has an unusually thick neck. His hair is black and closely clipped, his age being about 38 or 40. He has a small black mustache. The distinguishing feature of his costume is a leather apron, which he always wears and from which he gets his nickname. Number 7. A day after the double murder, Jack the Ripper alluded to the killings in a postcard sent to the London news agency signed Saucy Jack. It read, I wasn't coddling dear old boss when I gave you the tip. You heard about Saucy Jack's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit. Couldn't finish straight off. Ha, not the time to get the ears for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got back to work. Number 8. The Ripper's most gruesome crime scene was the site of his only indoor murder. Mary Jane Kelly was murdered on November 9th, 1888. Her murder scene would have been the worst viewed by police. It was also the only murder that was known to take place inside a building, and it appeared that Jack was able to take his time and mutilate the body in horrifying ways. Mary had several deep cuts across her neck to her spine. The murderer also cut off her breasts, removed large swaths of flesh from her abdomen and inner thighs, and sliced off her chin. The murderer also cut off her breasts, removed large swaths of flesh from her abdomen and inner thighs, and sliced off her chin, lips, nose, eyebrows, and eyelids. The only body part taken this time was her heart. The murderer took the time to display her body parts on various surfaces throughout the bedroom, including her bed, bedside table, mantle, and underneath her head. Mary's butchered face was unrecognizable. Number 9. There's a disagreement as to whether Jack the Ripper possessed advanced anatomical knowledge and surgical skills. The physician who examined Annie Chapman stated his belief that Jack the Ripper was someone with considerable anatomical and surgical knowledge. He based this on the killer's supposed dexterity with precisions and ability to quickly remove body parts and organs. Several other physicians backed this up, saying the Ripper must have had considerable knowledge of the position of the organs in the abdominal cavity and the way of removing them. The murders required a great deal of medical knowledge to have removed the kidney and to know where it is placed. But an official police released by the London police surgeon Dr. Thomas Bond refuted this, stating, The mutilation was inflicted by a person who had no scientific nor technical knowledge. In my opinion, he does not even possess the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer or any person accustomed to cut up dead animals. And finally, number 10. Modern profiling suggests Jack the Ripper was stimulated by his total control of harvesting his victims' body parts and organs. Robert Keppel, a veteran serial homicide investigator profiler, says that while a serial killer's method of operation may change over time, his signature and compulsive fantasies behind the rituals will not. Keppel analyzed Jack the Ripper in 2005 and concluded that he was primarily motivated by the escalating sexual gratification he received from stabbing, eviscerating, and controlling a victim's viscera. In his book Sons of Cain, acclaimed author Peter Vronsky argued that the most consistent signature in Jack the Ripper's murders was picarism, the act of using a knife to imitate penetration and sexual intercourse. Vronsky outlined 11 characteristics to this signature, concluding that Jack the Ripper was a necrophile of the warm, destructive variety. Alright folks, here we go, the grand finale. Case Updates some people have their lives become obsession in the world of crime because there are so many unsolved cases that if I told you just how many are floating around, you'd blow a head gasket. Let's just say that they number in the tens of thousands and that stack gets higher and higher with each passing day. 
The long path to concluding Jack the Ripper ended long ago with no real answers, but the public picked up where the cops tossed it in the cold case bin, which is why, unofficially, it has stayed open. Every passing year, the well of misinformation and outright total fabrications gets bigger and bigger with the identity of London's evisceration of evil. Some claim they have damning evidence about who the man was, and some even saying he wasn't a man at all, but rather a demon, hell-bent on causing harm and pain, and still yet many claim he was an amalgamation of different men, part of a cult that targeted women, and disbanded shortly after they had their fill of victims. The past century has never really produced anything credible, but it always made for great entertainment and sparked the imagination getting not only others into the world of Jack, but also into other mysteries to solve, and hopefully give solace to the victim's families and descendants. Sooner or later, however, someone will come along and blow the lid off of all the perceived suspects and come forward with something juicy that actually holds up and makes sense, such as with Sarah Bax Horton, an ex-police volunteer and the great-great-granddaughter of a police officer who investigated the Jack the Ripper murders. She believes she has uncovered the killer's true identity. Sarah has written a book on her research into local cigar maker Chaim Himes, who she has said closely matches witness descriptions from the time of a suspect scene with the victims. Bax Horton said she had identified Himes, an epileptic and alcoholic who was in and out of mental asylums as a likely culprit. Witnesses at the time described a man seen with the victims who was in his mid-30s with a stiff arm, irregular gait, and bent knees. Her book One-Armed Jack, Uncovering the Real Jack the Ripper, comes out next month, which unearthed medical records for Himes, who was aged 35, in 1888. They showed he had an injury that left him unable to bend or extend his left arm, and also dragged his foot and could not straighten his knees. There were also close similarities in his height and build to the witness descriptions. It indicated Himes had regular seizures due to epilepsy in the notes taken from hospitals and asylums. He was permanently committed to a mental asylum in September 1889 and died in 1913. Her great-great-grandfather was posted at the headquarters of the investigation and concluded that Himes, who had previously attacked his wife with a chopper, killed because of his physical and mental decline worsened by alcoholism. It isn't just his physical description that led Horton to Himes. She also used his violent history, location of his work and home, medical records, and even police interactions to fill in details. As Horton spells out, Himes was a cigar maker living and working in the area. That profession is accustomed to using knives quite frequently, which was a focus of the investigation due to the body mutilations and manner of death. He was also an epileptic and alcoholic who was well acquainted with stays in mental institutions. Himes was 35 years old in the summer of 1888, and his height and weight fall in line with the accounts of men possibly seen with the victims. Himes was also known to assault his wife and was arrested following an attack on both his wife and mother. Then comes the timing of everything. While additional murders took place in the area in the years following 1888, they were never conclusively linked back to the original summer of 1888 investigation, leading some to believe that Jack the Ripper's killing spree only lasted one summer. The end of that summer matches when Himes was scooped up by police for his degrading mental state and later moved to the Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum in North London. Even in light of this evidence, Himes' name had been on a long list of potential suspects, but Sarah said he had never before been fully explored as a Ripper suspect, as he didn't fit the profile at the time, and they were ignoring the asylum as a possible source of suspects since they were locked up and not taken into consideration that a lot of the patients were committed there after the murders. 
Ripper expert Paul Big called Bax Horton's findings a well-researched, well-written, and long-needed book-length examination of a likely suspect. Even if her evidence is the most compelling yet, it should still be taken with a huge grain of salt and scrutinized, seeing as how 130 years have passed since the murders, and it really comes down to her book being in another long line of possible matches that will no doubt lead to another dead end, despite the long length of road that seems to go somewhere rather than nowhere. Still, you have to give some respect to those that devote a good chunk of their lives to unraveling such a deadly point in history, whether it's for personal fame or just to finally close a deathly dark chapter in the world's book of unspeakable violence. And so at last, we come to the end of our bloody rapture of gore and the end of a long, surreal journey of this very wild ride of a season. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed narrating. I greatly appreciate you tuning in for my latest batch of tales. The next season will be announced soon. Be on the lookout for a date for all new insanity and interesting stories guaranteed to send your mind on a voyage across the cosmos of non-stop facts and fantastic brilliance that you don't want to miss. Be sure to follow me on Instagram and threads at the Nightcap Nebula Pod and check out my merchandise on TeePublic under the name The Nightcap Nebula Podcast to grab a coffee mug or shirt to show your narrator some love. And if not, be sure to like, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Anything you can do to increase this program's exposure, I appreciate. Until next time, be safe and stay curious.